Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. It's the human experience coming at you. We've got Clark Stewart in our presence this evening. Clark, I've been secretly obsessed with what the sun is doing for the last decade. So welcome to Human XP, man. It's glad to have you here. I'm glad to be here. It's uh, excellent to have other people interested in an area that is otherwise sometimes fairly nerdy and... uh, quite wide in its scope so there's actually quite a bit of material i've been pouring over for the last 10 years yeah there's some there's definitely some high level physics math behind this so just yep. i want to lay kind of a foundation <coughs> for how you got into this work and and what your what your education is what your background is could you go into that for us sure 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 well Definitely, I've always been fascinated by science since I was a kid, so it was something that I pursued wholeheartedly from a very young age. I stopped reading fiction in grade four, so since grade five onward, I've been pretty much heavy hauling. So that's just straight science since grade five. Mm -hmm. So I basically got involved with what you would call here in Canada enrichment programs from an early age. I don't know what you call it down in the south. Maybe it's gifted or special <laughs> access. Yeah, I'm like honors. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like I I was very clear about trying to find answers and um, very uh, much into digging into libraries and finding how to put things together. So it really started in grade five, and I did a complete presentation on how the evolution occurs from a single-celled organism up to modern man. Now, and that's towing all the accepted criteria lines. Um, And I continued to do so well into my physics faculty program that I started in uh, 99, 2000. Now, I've had several other sort of caveats of secondary education, including advertising arts, digital design, um, engineering program. Um, And so I've come back to physics and math. Mm-hmm. And I guess what started to emerge was an understanding that things were not as they would seem. And the questions I was asking in the halls of academia were not being answered to my satisfaction. Let's just say that. And I started to make note of a certain, let's call it a, a, a consciousness or presence within academia it partly appreciated it, but it partly I felt it was holding me back. And there was too many answers in too many wide varying fields that I couldn't sort of wrestle with in one faculty alone. Because as we will unfold this whole project that I now call the Mayan Rosetta Stone, it's quite interdisciplinary is what they would call it. This is spanning all faculties. Mm-hmm. So basically without sort of launching into everything, um, I'm at a point where I've gone into a sabbatical mode 
um, leaving the Department of Physics and Mathematics, still very dear to my heart, but it's something that I discovered during my undergraduate studies. So I decided to depart and... Uh, so you mean the lack of research that you're seeing is in regards to the sun specifically? It wasn't so much as the lack of research. It was the overall type of, I, I said sort of a general comment, like consciousness. Okay. And you're kind of going like, well, what does this guy mean? There was certain things that I observed, and I feel very fortunate to having those insights to the sort of inner politics of the faculty of physics and certain things that were, you know, the freedom to, let's say, explore any area was not an open door. And there were certain things that I wanted to push and proceed into that, let's just say, somebody going into a PhD program, which was the inevitable outcome of what I was doing, um, I had already felt out what the, the aspects of what my possibilities would be. And it seemed very close-minded. And I was interested in probing in areas in ways that would probably seem too liberal for that mindset at that time, at that place. So, now, at, that, so at that point, you disconnected from academia and kind of moved into your own way of researching and studying. Can you give us your, can you go into your personal story about how you got into this research? Well, it uh, certainly started within the halls of academia. And it's not that I left and didn't go back. I actually took time, uh, several years, to sort of process what it was that I was starting to sort of see or access. And it was kind of a funny thing that was happening. And I noticed this with wherever I went, that I was continuing to ask questions. And other students would say to me, Clark, why do you keep asking, like, why? It's as if you're doubting the founding fathers of, of science and physics. And I, would, and I would restate this every time. It's not that I'm doubting them. It's just that in order for me to understand fully, I have to ask these questions. They qualify the arguments. I don't just lap it up. I have to ask and analyze, even though they're so-called accepted truths. You see what I mean? Yeah. So for me, I'm just doing what I would think is good homework. I'm trying to get down to the philosophical underpinnings of these modern accepted uh, theorems. Okay. So, so let's let's get into the actual Mayan Rosetta Stone and, and the and your sure. journey because your story your your story is pretty interesting. Uh, let's let's get into that, please. Uh, what what? How did you how did you start uncovering? What's happening with the sun? Why the sun is important, etc. Well, yeah, it well it didn't actually occur to me, and I could make the long story short by saying I it would appear as though the the sun directly interfaces at the, with the biology, and there's a particular type of case um, that's been somewhat uh, studied by the neuroscience people as of today, and these are what we call cerebral sensitive people. These are people that are sensitive to electromagnetic frequencies. Now, at the time, I didn't know that. I didn't even know these terms. And in fact, I didn't start getting into sort of the neurophysiology of it all until years later. That'd be the mid-2000s. And at the time, I just found myself engrossed into trying to understand the body, how it interacts with our environment, 
and it would take me years to figure out all of the space weather correlations. At the time, I was fascinated by trying to figure out the role of food, the role of sustenance, you know, the simple stuff in metaphysics and martial arts that is like square one. But as I proceeded into 2003, it was at that point that we were at the peak of solar cycle 23. Um, it technically it was the second peak because as anyone will tell you, and clearly you'll see on the graphical data, every solar cycle has two peaks. It's kind of like looking at one of your molars, uh, from a side view. So it's got the first peak and the second peak. It was at that second peak that I got kind of struck down with something that I couldn't put my finger on. It seemed to be something that was just chewing me and thinning me away. I became allergic to everything under the sun. So you know, basically it was forcing me into a sort of cleanse, fast, vision quest scenario that was pretty much foisted on me. And right. this was several months. And when I kind of came out of it, it was literally like my consciousness had been shifted. Colors didn't look the same anymore. It was, in fact, a, a sort of a, a morphogenetic uh, shift of what I was from what I became. Some people like to use the whole uh, gestation of the uh, caterpillar into the butterfly, and that would probably seem to fit. But it would take me years after this whole circumstance to figure out the what we would call today the chronobiology, chronos or chrono being time, or the heliobiology. It took me years to sort this all out, and there's exquisite treasure trove of data between all these different fields that interconnect. And I'd say by far the most fascinating, because you can get stuck in climate and the studies with how sun and the climate are affected, but I, to me, the most fascinating stuff is how this energy is actually interacting with our biology, interacting with our endocrine system, and interacting with our consciousness, and creating in some cases, subtle shifts, and in some cases, very potent concoctions of neurohormones. So, so I know that we have lunar cycles, and yes. we're aware of that. And you know, we we talk about the twenty-eight day sort of moon, and 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 the, how that affects you know the tidal waves. And so, there's in your work, there seems to be a link between what the sun is doing, how the sun is affecting the moon, and thereby affecting the Earth. Am I getting that right? How does that how does that work? Okay, the, the lunar phase is 29.53 days. Okay. Um, now, to, to kind of launch into this, I, it, was, it was really Michael Persinger, uh, Dr. Persinger, from the head of the neuroscience uh, division at the University of Laurentian up here in Sudbury, where the big neutrino detector is. He was the one who kind of um, took a lot of my kind of crazy high-flying ideas. I just come back from Mexico and I had gone through some interesting circumstances at the pyramids and ceremonies, which we can maybe get into later. But he took all these high-flying ideas and these visions and my interest in physics, and he kind of gelled it out by explaining to me how the moon basically acts as a very basic fundamental oscillation of the geomagnetic field and the Schumann resonance and how our consciousness is intimately tied into this. Now, he, he's at the head of that sort of gestalt, gestalt of research that's looking at how these uh, frequencies interact with consciousness. And he's basically trying to see how they can take those magnetic frequencies and apply them to the brain through what he calls transcranial stimulation and produce things like the God experience. Basically, 
trying to systematically go through waves and frequencies uh, that are all within the small, small scale nanoteslas, really, of magnetic stimulus onto the brain, which show very distinct uh, circumstances arising. So clearly the moon plays a very fundamental role because it's constantly uh, going in and out of the geomagnetic tail. And it's acting somewhat like a, a, a satellite dish, uh, perturbing the conductive layers of the ionosphere. Hmm. And hmm. as soon as you alter conductive layers of the ionosphere, you might as well say you're changing the overall intensity and the overall, the frequencies uh, will change as well. And so if you consider uh, like how the brain functions within this, the brain turns out to be a very interesting sort of tuned resonant circuit, almost like, well, anything in our modern society uses this sort of antenna principle uh, or tuning fork principle. Mm -hmm. And basically the brain is uh, nothing short of a Schumann resonant designed or evolved within uh, circumstance. That is, the brain clearly had to evolve within the Schumann field for millions of years okay so let's it, let's 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 back up just a little bit let's rewind sure. and let's go back to okay when when we hear about solar flares and we we notice yes. there's a cme how does that affect the human body what occurs <laughs> well that's <laughs> that's a really big question man so you want to say body and you want to uh perhaps simplify this as how I simplify this, and I, I believe this ties into sort of one of the contemporary leading experts on the body, which is, by my account, Bruce Lipton. And Bruce Lipton is teaching us about the biology of perception, and that's a super key role. Now, I'm sort of piggybacking on a lot of giants' shoulders, and I, I, I make no mistake about that. There's several researchers I, I'm standing on the shoulders of. Bruce Lipton happens to be one of them. Okay. Now, he discusses how stress, uh, the fight or flight response occurs, and our, it's up to our perception to basically tackle or decide on how to react to a circumstance. What I'm saying is a little bit a step uh, behind that or above that, if you're using top-down method methodologies, and is to say that, well... There's a whole host of literature in the uh, chronobiology field, which is a really exquisite area of medical um, experts from around the world who are looking at circadian rhythms and how they're tying into such things as solar wind, for example. There's a really good study by a doctor who uh, basically um, had a continuous setup where he's measuring his own uh, blood pressure, so his diastole and his systole, over the course of, it was a, a multi-year study. And what they found is that the, the correlation between his blood pressure and the solar wind were like a, a high correlative coefficient. Okay. So we should so, stop there and kind of go. So I find it personally when, yeah. when I notice that, and I do observe what's happening with the sun quite a lot. I do check it every day. Mm -hmm. uh, I, do, I find that when there's a solar storm, I personally get really sensitive. Like I yes. am, my emotions are very sensitive. And like, I, I mean, I don't know. It, it, approaching clairvoyance, I mean, like psychic phenomena, like all these, all these really interesting things yeah. sort of happen to me when the sun is flaring out. So how do you explain this? 
so <clears throat> this uh, there's 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 several um, theories that attempt to tackle this. Uh, for example, just to somewhat make a, a closed loop here with uh, Bruce Lipton is he he talks about the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is basically a core functional sensor system of the body. Um, and that's one really good way of looking at how this energy is interacting with the, with the body. Now, how exactly does, say, the Schumann resonance? So we have to kind of pick one topic and, and deal with that because there's obviously several layers of the electromagnetic spectrum that we uh, live within that is directly modulated by Earth, Moon, Sun, and planets. So if we were just to focus on a, a small discourse on the Schumann resonance, well, um, this is uh, another lead that Persinger gave me, which is another neuroscientist by the name of Nunes. Now, Nunes publishes in uh, neuroscience textbooks, and he's got his own um, books on the electric fields of the brain. And basically what he's shown is that the cranial structure of the skull, so human skull, cranial uh, resonance cavity structure, if you will, of the brain can be uh, mathematically modeled with the same kind of equations that uh, Otto Schumann uh, modeled theoretically of the ionosphere in 1952. Okay. So what we're saying here is that if the action potential of synaptic firing in the brain is in resonance with the uh, frequency of the electrons in this ionosphere, what we're saying is that the standing waves between the two are tuned together. So even though In English, this is, man, let's like, let's simplify this down just because okay, I, don't, so your I brain, have no idea what you're talking about. Your brain is a small, <laughs> is a small, say, tuning fork. Right. Okay. And of course, I'm trying to give you some details technically right. that this has to do with the resonance of the actual geometric structure of the brain. Okay. And you have electrons firing in your brain, and those create what we would call EEG spectrum, which is your alpha, your beta, you know, and it basically ranges from zero hertz up to 30-odd hertz. Okay. Now, is it not coincidental that the Schumann resonance is basically overlapping that exact same mm, frequency? That's very interesting. In engineering, yeah. we refer to the spectrum as ELF. That's basically zero to 30 hertz. So now, all the, Schumann, the Schumann resonance is the very the the vibration or the the frequency at which the magnetic field around the Earth is vibrating at. Is that right? It's the particular area between um, the ionosphere and the ground. Okay. And it's because that that area of the uh, atmosphere is conductive. Now, there's other areas around that called the geomagnetic field, um, but that's not a frequency uh, of the same sort that we're talking about. Just to kind of separate, there is these two different areas of okay. geomagnetic field. So, so there is there is a link between the human resonance, the human brain, and I, I really want to know how the sun starts to affect the brain, like neurochemically, neurologically, right. the yep. neuroplasticity of this. And gotcha. Well, that's actually. Um, we're, we're in the midst of creating several info posters that will um, absolutely help people see this because there is a lot of technical literature and vernacular behind all this. Um, so the visuals are quite helpful, and we will have those up on the website. 
soon enough to help with this discourse. But to, to sort of pin down the, uh, the neuroplasticity, which is really new topics. I mean, when you consider that 10, 15 years ago to say that your, your brain could just uh, regrow new stem cells in, in vitro is just absolutely what you've been laughed at. And now we, it's just, we take it as point of fact. But now we're getting down to the nitty-gritty, which is, um, is it just happening on Fridays because you're all excited? Like, what, what's the method to the madness is basically what you're asking me, right? Right. And you're already taking the supposition or hypothesis that the sun is playing um, an active role in this, right? And basically what we need to hash out is the, the details, right? So we, we've gotten to a point of understanding that the sun is intimately connected with the earth and that the energetic fields from the sun reach out and connect with this geomagnetic field. And it's from that point that a whole range of things happen and the, shall we say, the collateral action, because I don't want to call it damage, um, occurs as it filters through the atmosphere and eventually filtering on to us. Now, to truly understand this, one might want to understand that um, magnetic fields do play a very intrinsic role on how consciousness can be, occur or can be altered to occur artificially. So when you kind of look at a lot of the Persinger literature that he's published over the last 40 years, you, you really start to see that um, there's a way to stimulate this neurogenesis, which is a, a, a neurohormone production. And those in turn create neurotransmitters. And so those uh, neurotransmitters are, are what we then get into the sort of fight or flight response. Are you, for example, there's, there's people that will become sensitive, yes, but the direction that you go when you receive this energy is still up to the user. It's, it's your own brain, man. So it's you, you, the user interface is often what is attributed to such things as the pyramid. The pyramid effect, as many uh, have detailed, is, is somewhat um, like a vortex. It's what you take into it. It amplifies it. So it amplifies what you're already working with. But there are definitely very specific exercises that we see in the Mayan lore that effectively deal with how to live within a very active period of the sun. And in fact, it, this is a supposition that I've had to come to, uh, is that the, the, the Mayans had a very detailed calendar of how this electromagnetic activity that we live within, the field, the matrix, if you will, how it was modulated over a period of time. And in fact, it's what we found to be the long count calendar. Now, their whole life and social structure is absolutely different than ours. They lived in a way that honored what was happening on the sun so that when the sun is acting very violent, they had dates to basically, from my point of view, that would predict that so that they could go into vision quests and ceremonies and, say, not be driving on the highway. Wow. Or, you know. Wow. So it's like we're talking about... You know, and this might be jumping to the absolute uh, conclusion of all this research I've been doing, but looking at the way the Mayans actually handled this type of insight 
is to me looking at a type two or type three civilization. Somebody who works with this solar energy is on a whole different level. Let me let me stop you right there. So okay, so um, when you say type two civilization, Earth is classified right now as a type zero civilization. That's according to the physicist Michio Kaku. <laughs> so okay, so who's, who's so also type... supposing we would get into twenty uh, about twenty forty? He supposes will be a type one civilization. That's according to the Kardashev scale, which is denoted by the type of energy systems that we use. Okay, okay. So a type two civilization would be classified as uh, a civilization that was traveling through sp- space and had had free energy. Is that basically? Um, well, you might say that, but it's, um, perhaps, how would, how would a, a type two civilization be classified? It's a better question. Uh, well, certainly anyone can look up the Kardashev scale. Um, but say, say type one technology has to do with basically fairly similar to what is being obtained on earth. It's, it's a typically denoted in the amount of Watts that we're able to utilize. So we can pretty much effectively use the type of technology we are today and obtain type one. Okay. It's when we get to type two that we really have to be harnessing energy, uh, basically from a different type of vantage point, perhaps different physics is involved. Uh, I would suspect that would be so that our physics will have to allow certain things to happen. Um, For example, wormholes. Today, physics will tell us wormholes could not be sustained or open for any kind of use because the amount of energy that's necessary, absolutely astronomical. But from another physics vantage point that perhaps understands wormholes a whole lot better, you might see that they're, well, they manifest quite spontaneously. And if you could predict when and where they happen, then you might not need the energy to sustain the wormhole because it happens quite naturally. Now, I'm actually leading into something quite a bit bigger when I say this, so I'm not just using this as an analogy. Okay. But indeed, when you're talking about type 2 or type 3 civilization, this is another sort of level to which we would have to understand. Okay. What... Why Mayan Rosetta Stone? I mean, why why is that the title of your work? Okay, well, the Rosetta Stone, for those that don't know, just just the Rosetta Stone part of it is having to do with the, the lexicon that actually enabled us to translate Egyptian from from Greek, and that was uh, located uh, uh, between the front paws of the Sphinx. That became sort of um, an idea for for me that was not just a metaphor for something that could help us see into the past and obviously translate Egyptian hieroglyphics was a huge step for us. What I'm seeing from the Aztec Sunstone is a computational algorithm that allows us to see the science and therefore the physics, therefore the technology, and therefore the civilization social structure of the past. And so by taking the Sunstone and deciphering the cycles that I have, I'm seeing evidence of science that is more advanced than ours today. And I'm translating it into modern science using the the best that our space physics uh, can provide. So modern 
satellite data, modern algorithms, modern you know computer finesse statistics, and uh, all the best mathematics that our genius scholars have provided, including all the way back to Newton himself. So I'm standing on all of this technology, all the satellite data, and uh, the very best that mathematics can offer, and we're just starting to peel back the skin of this proto-civilization that I would call Mayan, but I would suspect predates everything that we know has occurred in Mesoamerica. That's modern accepted uh, knowing. So we're looking at something that is clearly what they call antediluvian, perhaps previous to the Ice Age, something that has been washed out and somewhat forgotten about and has been used sort of let's say half mixed into the, the what we would call the Aztec uh, philosophies today. Okay, okay. So I'm starting to get a little bit of a picture here. Let's let's make it a little bit more clear. Sure. Um, now there there was a sort of Mayan thing happening in 2012 where right. it looked like there was an, a misinterpretation of the long count versus <laughs> and it seems like there's a there's a whole idea or, or something that people are not understanding there. Can you just clarify that for us? What is, what is the actual meaning of a long count? What's, why didn't yes. the world end in 2012? Oh, bueno. Well, um, basically, I mean, let, let's, let's take a look at the, the, the start date, the end date. Um, I, I would think that the end date put forward at, at December 21st was, um, Another one of these events that I, I'm i not sure if it's completely concocted by media, I'd suspect that com when we compare it to the start date of the Mayan calendar or the, the long count calendar, um, which had, I mean, 18 researchers spent a good chunk of their life to produce that date of 3114, August 13th, BC, and that is now called today the Goodman-Martinez-Thompson correlation. That has had exquisite amount of detailing and finessing and like, I mean, you can read up on it on, on the internet. It, it had a lot of background. Now, December 21st, 2012 came about and I found personally the amount of evidence to pin that date out was not very well hashed out in, in any sense of the matter. Um, let alone the, the data supporting where exactly archaeologically in the Mayanology that was found um, was fairly hodgepodge. And so, first of all, I'd like to say that that is a speculative end date. There's nothing wrong with trying to pin it on a solstice or an equinox because a lot of these calendars are very much so hinged on the, the eight, say, cardinal points of the year, the, the, two, the two equinoxes, the two solstices, and the two uh, zeniths and the two nadirs. So, and that's partly why the calendar sunstone is uh, vivisected in, in, in portions of eight. Um, but to put a whole whack load of uh, intrepidation and uh, focus on one date and something happening on that one date um, is not exactly how I've come to understand the calendar works. See, there's many cycles within the calendar, and to think that you would only focus on the end date, you're, you're you know, looking, you're overlooking the whole 
intrinsic detailing that the calendar does. Like the first day value is one day, which is a kin. And if you take 20 days, you get to a win out. So, and then it continues to go up from there, generally in a vigesimal or 20 base count. But so what is it that they were trying to do? Most of what the long count represents to have it focused on one day and then have that day fail, I mean, clearly it's being, uh, I would say, artificially inflated to be put up on a, on, on a scale that when it failed, it would mean that people would just forget about it. And so for me, I'm trying to dig out what this was actually doing. So the question is, if it's not about an end date, what is it about? A start date. Well, you need the start date for sure. <laughs> okay. But if it's an, if, and so there's interviews with the, some of the elders and I've spent time with them. The, there's various elders in the Nahuatl that would look at the Aztec sunstone and say, this is a mathematical concept. And I'm just adding to that and saying it's actually an algorithm, which means it's, it's about chomping out smaller day value cycles. And now, <coughs> excuse me, um, we're starting to see that in our space uh, satellite data. We're starting to see magnetic complexities occurring over smaller than 11-year sunspot cycles. That means we don't just need to look forward to when the peak, the next peak is. There's actually these small, um, what they call multi-cycles, which occur in the data. And that it turns out that there's an embryonic cycle to the sunspot's magnetic complexity. And that seems to be a function of what they call in the solar system planetary beats. And a beat, other than beep, 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 beat like a drum beat is actually the beat of a frequency or orbital period if you will wow. they refer to these they refer to these as gravitational frequencies which is another term in the vernacular for planetary periods of orbit and they play a role somewhat again like music and these theories go all the way back to Kepler who tried to sustain this all with musical octaves and basically trying to figure out how the sun works. And in a sense, when you look at the long count calendar, it is nothing short of a harmonic set of numbers that are exquisitely valuable. And at the end of all this, you realize, and my supposition going into it was that I wonder if this is more than just a sun calendar, meaning if I want to prove that there's actually solar physics in this sun calendar, what do I need to do? How do I need to prove that? And so if the first thing I did is I pulled apart the, the sunstone itself because I realized there was clearly, this was a, like a multi-layered Photoshop job here I had to do. <laughs> yeah. And whoever created this, which we, by the way, we have no known author of the Aztec sunstone. It is there. It was found buried in Mexico City, but we really don't know who created it. I can tell you this much, whoever did that is a flippin' genius. Because what is encrusted into that rock was clearly an effort to preserve... So what does all of this information mean? Okay, so, yeah, the sun affects the earth, the Mayans had some awareness of what was happening here. It's what all is, about what energy this, cycles. What does this mean for us now, today? What can we learn from this, you know, through this conversation? What can... 
can people really understand through what we're discussing here? <laughs> well, I mean, you talk you, in your work. You talk a little bit about the hero's journey. I, I'd like yes. to get into that a little bit. Ah, uh, yes. Well, isn't this interesting? I mean, there's many mythologies from every sector of the world, and clearly Joseph Campbell, who was the sort of protege to George Lucas, and pretty much the the way that Star Wars was laid out was on the on on the heels of. Uh, Heroes with a Thousand Masks and, and Joseph Campbell's work was basically looking at all the mythologies around the world. And it was in Campbell's last book that he started to look at numbers and how numbers kept reoccurring in all these global mythologies. I mean, mythologies from totally different sectors of the world were using the same number which was coming up again and again, which is the 432 number. So he was making note of this in, the, in his book. Uh, this is the last book he published before he, he passed on, which is Inner Reaches of Outer Space. And um, he made note of this. And he was trying to kind of wonder, like, what is the significance of this in terms of the hero's journey? Why would they figure it necessary to continually use numbers in the mythological story? And so it's from that point that I want to pull people's attention to what is m kind of concurrent with our, our society. Because if I start talking about the Riggs Thula and, you know, Icelandic lore, people are going to kind of go, well, I really don't understand any of that. <laughs> but what people do understand is the genius of Tolkien. J.R.L. Tolkien has produced probably the best mythology that modern man has been talking about Lord of the Rings here talking Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit what okay. was unique I'm going to ask you a question now let's see if you were paying attention when you watched this what was you unique about those two trilogies that were the same oh Clark you're going to well, hate me dude I, <laughs> I actually fell asleep right. I fell asleep that's the only movie that I've ever fell asleep in and I, and I fell asleep okay. in that movie I'm so sorry man I just so I don't understand that reference okay, why don't you just okay, tell okay, us okay. So what caught my attention, because I'm no Tolkien connoisseur, I'll admit that right up front. I haven't read the books. So when I watch the movies, what really caught my attention, because here I am totally engrossed in the cycle research, is that to the day that Frodo left the Shire, to the day he was back in 13 months. And I kind of went, that's very interesting. Why would they do that? Okay, so for the listener that's listening to this, and he's going, okay, 13 months, what's so significant about that? 13 months, there's two significant things about 13 months. First of all, the lunar synodic period is 13 months. Second of all, and I think almost on a hierarchical basis, Jupiter, okay, Jupiter synodic period is 399 days, which is essentially 13 months. It, it, it does variate, but... Essentially, why do we even care about Jupiter is what we're finding out with all the latest data pooling in is that Jupiter's got a mammoth electromagnetic field, one so large, in fact, that it can dwarf uh, the size of the coronasphere of the sun. So it's mm. over 250,000 kilometers across. Mm. And data suggests, now really good data, from the Russian uh, Academy of Science shows that whenever we pass in front of Jupiter, meaning we're, we're lapping, we're about to lap Jupiter in, in orbit and we're about to pass it. Well, for us to go back to the same point we were at, it takes us a year, 365 days. But to catch up to Jupiter from where we last saw him and passing him in orbit takes us that extra... 13, you know, uh, 13 months. Or, sorry. Well, it takes us yeah. the extra 34, yeah. 35 days. Wow. And 
that function now we know for certain from what the Russians have done, Skriabin being one of the, the leaders in this field, shows us that whenever we pass in front of Jupiter, definite changes in solar wind are occurring. We know this because we can take ground-based measurements of isotopes. Those isotopes give us clear, distinct signals of whenever the sun is being modulated or whenever the cosmic radiation that comes from background space is being modulated. So every 400 days when we get in front of Jupiter, we experience a phenomena of electromagnetic oscillation. Now, seeing how we've just covered how the human resonance is such a, a prime uh, driver to consciousness, isn't it interesting that Tolkien decided to ascribe the whole journey of not just Frodo, but Bilbo, over a 13-month journey. Hmm. Now, and it's called Lord of the Rings, and doesn't Jupiter have a large ring around the center of it, I think? It does have a ring, but not, not quite as distinct as uh, it. Well, its ring, just for the, for the record, is an invisible ring of electromagnetism, with the, namely the moon Isle which is a huge plasma ring, often seen, you know, we see electrical um, conductivity occurring between that moon and, and, the, and, and Jupiter itself. And in fact, it creates a whole radio frequency spectrum unique to that orbit. So it, it is constantly bombarding us with radio frequencies as well. You might say Jupiter is in a place of pure potential. It okay. creates, uh, in a sense, more energy than it's receiving from the sun. Okay. 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 So, so, so we've covered a lot of information. It's like ripping through this this data. There's there's a part of your work that goes into some tools that you offer to help people. Is that is that what you call them? What well, what are those? What are some of those? Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, data, knowledge, I mean, sure, people will, if, you know, if they went through, I don't know, 10 hours of, of this material and they could sit through a 10-hour lecture and get, get everything about all the science, at the end of the day, they say, okay, I am living on a planet that's bombarded by electromagnetic frequencies. Those frequencies are constantly in, in a cyclical behavior. They're constantly bringing me up and bringing me down, so I experience the highs and lows of life. What does it mean? Okay, this would be the first time in our known history that we'd have the ability to predict when an event would happen. What would that mean, Xavier, if I told you on such and such day that, well, let's look at the day that just passed because, I mean, really, that was one of the dates that I had calculated. And so I don't know at, at times what's going to happen. It's, it's an, an electromagnetic point in the algorithm. And so I found it interesting that we just got hit by a nice uh, solar wind that sort of comes through the system and basically duntiates us with high energy from the sun. So what, what would it mean if you know you're being affected by this, but I can now give you lead time and say – how, how would you want to prepare? Now, I could give you tools to prepare that are in part based upon metaphysical techniques, uh, but they're pretty ubiquitous throughout martial arts, throughout yoga, and throughout meditational practices. There are certain visualization exercises that uh, certainly allow you to uh, feel more grounded and more connected because it's at these times when there's a high amount of energy coursing through your body that if you don't have techniques 
it's at that point that you know we can steer people into what happens when you don't have techniques and say you have propensities for the more dramatic flair or the more psychological imbalances. Right. Well, we do know that when this energy is fluctuating, uh, myocardial heart infarctions or heart attacks are much higher when the geomagnetic storms are occurring. So obviously learning how to breathe using some of the tools that are already available in the Global Coherence Initiative website, which deals with you know monitoring the heart and trying to meditate and breathe through these times because these are awful, like these are supercharged periods of time. And to be kind of sideswiped by them and not know that they're occurring is a, is a, a somewhat of a, a young species that we are. And even though we have lots of tools and toys and technology, we, we still don't understand how our environment is affecting us and how by doing these certain techniques, um, simple t techniques really, that anyone could learn in a yoga class, um, how they could be applied at very specific times. You actually really need these tools at very specific times because they can help balance you out and furthermore help to supercharge your meditation to take you, uh, uh, as if I were to quote from the, the scripts of, of the Mayan uh, Palenque uh, hieroglyphs that they open portholes. Mm -hmm. This is the act that the Mayan kings, the divine kings, would take upon themselves. They would enact these ceremonies, often using bloodletting, but in some cases not, and they would take the journey upon themselves to open a portal. These are direct uh, transcriptions of the Mayanologists. But they failed. For what reason? Why would they open portals? Well, let's look at portals as a function of the mind. To me, there is no better particle accelerator than that which you have upstairs in your head. Right. You, you can't buy anything better than what the brain is. The brain is an exquisite, amazing design that interacts with this high energy from the sun, from the planet. It's partly why these pyramids were placed in the positions that they were. And I'll tell you, if anyone hasn't figured out, the, the research of Burke in the book Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty is exquisite. It shows how the magnetic fields and the electric potential oscillates with these seasonal uh, values, with the diurnal circadian rhythms. So we know that it affects seeds. It We know that it improves agricultural uh, growth potential. We know that it affects consciousness because the Persinger's worked. So the, the 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 pyramid is really the ultimate understanding of a tool that helps mitigate the energy from up there in the atmosphere, the sun, down here to the earth, and where we are with our brains and our psychotronic activity. So is it is it possible that the sun is working in a way that could perhaps charge the pineal gland and induce these sort of almost psychedelic experiences in the brain? I mean, wasn't, wasn't McKenna working, Terrence yeah. McKenna working on a time wave zero aspect of, of things as well? Novelty theory. Can yes. you connect, can you connect that together for us? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I'm a big fan of McKenna's work. I personally attempted for the, the better part of a few years to get my head wrapped around time wave zero. And I just didn't think that, it was quite as clear as what I was looking for. And so what I produced was I 
and I'm saying this humbly because I have a lot of respect for, for what McKenna did, but I was looking for something a little more integral, something that I could actually pin down to specific cycles. So the work that I've really tried to show people is what's happened specifically in these interesting little seven-year periods. Um, this was also uh, taken note by the great work of um, Alexander Chijewski, who got into a lot of trouble for publishing the Mass Human Index, which shows the correlation between sunspot activity and the human excitability phenomena. Now, what am I saying and how does that relate to novelty? Let's tie this all in. Um, well, novelty is another way of, I mean, these are all just different terms. So human index, human excitability, novelty, they're all tied together because it's us expressing the energy. But it's very clear that the different energy produces within us a different type of, let's call it homeostasis, but clearly, what, what would you call the Occupy movement other than a direct implication of another type of energy coming into the human brain, to the human physiological complex? And Chajewski made note of this. He said we, the sign of this three-year period was that we would get up in arms. We would be unhappy with the status quo. We would challenge mainstream ideology. So I tie this into uh, three things for these seven-year periods. I tie it into a what's called a geohelio coupling, which is like literally like the Carrington event or the Quebec blackout. Mm -hmm. These are geomagnetic storms that affect the power grid, and they're very well documented. And so at the time, say in 1989, what else was happening in 1989? Come on, people. Lots of stuff was happening in 1989. There wasn't just geo like historical geomagnetic blackouts. There was